Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 16 this evening. Luke 16. We enter this evening's text right in the middle of Jesus' message to the Pharisees who had derided him for his teaching about personal consecration to the gospel, that you cannot serve God and mammon, no man indeed can serve two masters. And the Pharisees didn't like this message at all, primarily because they were the poster children for attempting to have it both ways. They were the poster children for attempting to serve both God and mammon. So they did what most people do when they're in a position of power and confronted with spiritual truths which make them uncomfortable. They attacked the messenger. They derided Jesus. Last week we walked through Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' message to them. He told them that they are those which justify themselves. He told them that the law cannot fail, will not fail, that they had tried to press into the kingdom, to commit violence against the kingdom, to take the kingdom of God and to claim it for themselves. And he said, I'm sorry, that's not going to work for you. I'm not sorry, in fact, that's not going to work for you. And then he told them, comparing them to an adulterous spouse, that they were spiritual adulterers who had left their first love to pursue the love of another. They were, simply put, those that were attempting to serve God and mammon, and when the choice had to be made, they chose mammon. Tonight, we continue with an illustration which Jesus gives right on the heels of that adultery, divorce concept. We speak of two men who had entirely different lives, in which they made entirely different spiritual choices, and through which they received entirely different eternal Consequences. We pick up in verses in verse 19 of Luke 16. We read verses 19 through 21 where the Bible says this. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. We open with a scene of deep contrasts. On the one hand, we have a certain rich man. The Bible describes him as being clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple dye in fabrics was extremely expensive at this time in history, a difficult process to create. This is why purple became the color of kings. It was the color of kings, not necessarily because purple has any thing special about it, except that purple was so expensive, purple fabrics were so expensive to have that only kings could have them, and so it became a royal color. He's also described as one who fared sumptuously every day. This means he ate delicious and expensive foods. He uh, lived under expensive, by expensive means. He was a, a man of great means, and he wasn't just a man of great means, but he lived by those means. He lived outside of that which normal people could eat, outside of that which normal people could have. He lived a life of luxury, of excess. The idea here is that he is wealthy, but he didn't just have wealth, but he used his wealth to enjoy the finer things. He loved wealth. He loved mammon. He served mammon. And we're introduced then in contrast to another man, a beggar, whose name is Lazarus. The certain rich man is not given a name. The beggar is a certain beggar named Lazarus. 
It is for this reason that many believe Jesus is not actually giving a parable here, but rather this is something that really happened because if indeed this is a parable, this is the only parable to my knowledge in the scripture where, God, where Jesus actually gives a person in the parable a name. That being said, Jesus is using parable language. So there's debate about that. It really doesn't matter one way or another. Lazarus was a beggar, presumably because he was an invalid. He couldn't walk. He was laid at the gate of the rich man every day, implying he could not walk, and so he begged for food because he could not work for his food. The Bible says he was full of sores. Generally, we would understand that these sores came from lying down on one side of his body for so long. So if you lie down on one side of your body and you don't shift your weight, you will begin to develop sores, open wounds that will fester because of laying on one side, laying on that side of the body for too long. The skin can't get airflow. It creates open sores that fester. Raw spots. He would, in this spot by the gate of this rich man, beg for the rich man's excess. Whatever scraps the rich man didn't want at the end of the day and were going to be thrown away, he would beg for those. He, he, he simply wanted to eat off of the excess of what the rich man said, this is trash. Lazarus said, I'll eat that. And to heighten the insult of this man's circumstances, the Bible says the dogs would come and lick his sores. We talked a little while ago in one of our messages about the nature of uh, dogs in the scriptures and that we see dogs as trusty friends, right? As those that we love. That's not how they regarded dogs in, in Near Eastern culture. Dogs were mongrels. Dogs were, 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 were um, inadequate. Dogs were that which you are to not want to have anything to do with. So for a dog to come up and lick your sores would be embarrassing. It would be degrading. In other words, Lazarus had nothing, zero, nothing in this life. He, was, he had no pride to hold on to. He had no money. He had no means. He, had, he, he didn't even have his health. He had nothing. And this is the contrast. A man who had everything and a man who had nothing. We continue. Verses 22 and 23. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. So we find that Lazarus died and is carried to this place called Abraham's bosom. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what Abraham's bosom is or was in a moment. For ease of understanding, though it will be uh, theologically imprecise, let's just say the beggar, it's, it's theologically imprecise, but for ease of understanding at this moment in our text, let's just say the, that Lazarus went to heaven. That's not actually, actually the place, but let's just say for the moment, Lazarus went to heaven to paint the contrast. The rich man died, was buried, and went to hell. Again, the word hell is theologically imprecise. We'll define it in a moment. Suffice it to say for this moment, Lazarus went to the place of rest in paradise. The rich man went to a place of torment. Now, don't forget our context here. The rich man did not go to hell because he had money. Not because he was rich. Jesus is not saying that money is bad. We know that the love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself, but the love of money. Jesus is not even saying that you can't enjoy the things which this life has to offer. We've learned that all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, right? That the things in this life are for us to enjoy. Jesus has taught his disciples, remember verse 13, 
This is our context. Jesus just taught his disciples, you cannot serve God and mammon. And now the Pharisees deride him for this. And Jesus is speaking to them in the context of ye cannot serve God and mammon. You, you cannot place your highest love and priority on both the things of this world and the things of the life to come. So as the illustration continues, we will find that the rich man ends up in hell, not because he was rich, but because money was his God, because he served mammon. That's the context, right? The same can be said about Lazarus. Lazarus did not go to heaven because he was poor. Lazarus went to heaven because having nothing, by implication, having nothing, having nothing in this life to hang his hat on, he hung his hat on God. He served God. He loved God. And this is a concept that is very common in Scripture. An undeniable biblical truth that it is much more difficult for people who have material wealth to find the humility necessary to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ than for those who do not have material wealth. Jesus will teach this in just a couple of chapters. Luke 18, verse 25, he'll say this, for it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. We will talk about it more when we get there, but for purposes of clarity, and again, this verse, when, when we get there in Luke 18, we'll come back to these verses. But for purpose of clarity, let's consider what Paul has to say on the topic. He says, For ye see your calling, brethren, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen yea the things which are not to bring to naught the things which are that no flesh should glory in his presence Paul says not many rich powerful smart honorable people actually come to Jesus Christ not because they can't come but because in order to come to Jesus Christ, a man must humble himself and be willing to yield the promises of this world for the promises of the world to come. A man must come to the point where he has all of the things in this life and he sees the things in this life and he sees the things of the life to come and he says, I'll gladly yield the things of this life for the things of the life to come. Now, it doesn't mean God's going to take away the things of this life, but they have to be on the altar. You have to serve God, not mammon. And that's hard for a man who has money to do, isn't it? It's hard for a man who has lived his entire life hanging his hat on the fact that money can solve my problems to say, God is now my solution. It's hard for a man that has a lot of prestige and honor in this life who says, when I turn to Christ, I'm going to lose this to say, I'm willing to give this up for Christ. It's hard for a man who is very strong and mighty and who has always pulled himself up by his bootstraps and always had a solution to say, you know what? There's no solution to heaven. I can't get there on my own. I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps to get there. I have to flee to Christ. That is hard. But you know what? If you're destitute and you have no money and you have no pride left and you have no honor, it's not hard for you to say, I'll turn to Christ, is it? Because you don't have anything else to hang your hat on. And so it is a biblical truth 
that it's difficult for people who have, it's more difficult for people who have things in this life, whether that's power, whether that's strength, whether that's might, whether that's honor, whether that's wealth, to come to Christ. Not because God has made it harder, but because their circumstances mean it's harder for them to yield. It's much more difficult for those who have tasted the finer things in life to be willing to yield their loyalty to God. And make no mistake, you cannot serve God and mammon. Having money isn't the problem. The problem is when money has you. And Paul makes this clear, as does Jesus, as does James in the book of James, that it is generally a rare thing for people with much honor, with much money, with much intelligence to come to faith in Christ. This is why I can have more success sharing the gospel at the jail than I can have door knocking in Buffalo, Minnesota. Because the people in jail are at or near rock bottom. And the people in Buffalo, Minnesota are prosperous. So why do they need God? And they say money is first place. If money stops being first place, then I might lose my fineries and I'm not willing to give up my fineries. Honor is first place. If I give up honor, then I give up what I have and I'm not willing to do that. It takes faith to say, I'm willing to yield the things that I can see and feel and touch and experience sensory for that which God has promised in the life to come. The same can be said not only for riches, as I mentioned, but power, prestige, honor, intellect. And so it is that the Bible tells us that not many who are great in this life or who want to be great in this life will find honor in the life to come. Now, before we continue to the illustration itself, I want to talk about this concept of Abraham's bosom and hell. I want to talk about the concept of the afterlife. I preached an entire sermon nearly two years ago on the nature of the afterlife. I preached that sermon, if you want to write it down, on January 17th of 2016. It was the second part of a three-part sermon in 1 Samuel 28, on our archives page, you will, find a more th- you will find that message to be more thorough. January 17th, 2016. It's a message in 1 Samuel 28, the second part of a three-part series where, we, where I specifically spoke about the afterlife. It is a more thorough message than what I'm going to cover this evening. But I'm going to give you the facts without substantiating them with a bunch of scripture. And that message, I go to all the scripture that, that, that compares this, contrasts this. I'm just going to give you the conclusion of that this evening. There are seven words in our New Testament that speak regarding the afterlife, describing what I believe to be seven different realms. Each of these has a Hebrew parallel in the Old Testament as well. The first three realms are covered by the word translated in the New Testament as heaven. So there are three realms that are covered by the New Testament word, uranos, meaning heaven, or translated in our New Testament, heaven. When the Bible speaks of heaven, a word used 264 times in the New Testament, it's speaking of three different places. There's the sky, the first heaven, is what it's called by the Jews, the place where the birds fly, where the clouds are, all of that. Then there's outer space. The Jews called it the second heaven. This is where the stars are. This is where the sun is. This is where the moon is. All of the sun is a star, I know. But this is where all of those things are, right? And then there is the abode of God. The Jews called this the third heaven. So when Paul speaks of having a vision where he was... uh, 
Actually, he doesn't know if it was a vision or not. He doesn't know if it was bodily or not, but he says, I was carried into the third heaven. He's talking about the abode of God, the place where God abides. And each time we encounter the concept of heaven, we have to use context to determine which one the Bible is talking about because they're all called the heavens and they all, all of them use the same Greek word, uranos, or, or Hebrew word, we're, we're, we're in the New Testament, so we're not going to get into all that, but they use the same word, the heavens, second, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. Now, the next realm of which the Bible speaks is a place called Gehenna which customarily we would call the lake of fire. Gehenna was actually a Greek transliteration of the Arabic form of the Hebrew word Gehinnom. <laughs> Did you follow that? So it's a Greek transliteration of the Arabic word of the Hebrew word Gehinnom, which literally means the valley of Hinnom. The valley of Hinnom was a place of tremendous evil, in the mind of the Jews. The Valley of Hinnom was the place where the, where the kings of Judea would go to worship devils, would go to sacrifice their children to devils. It was a place that was considered accursed in the Jewish mind. The Valley of Hinnom. This was a place of evil. This was a place where devils resided. This was a place where devils were worshipped. This was a place where children were sacrificed to Satan and his demonic hosts. To this end, the valley was synonymous with burning, with evil. It became an expressive word used to describe the final place of conscious torment in fire and separation from God, which in the New Testament is called the lake of fire. It's the final resting place of those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their savior, those who we would call the damned. Those who, because they have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, end up in eternal separation from God and conscious torment. Now take note. No one to this day is in the lake of fire. The lake of fire has not yet been populated. The lake of fire will first be populated by Antichrist and the false prophet. It is the final place of judgment, not the first place of holding for unbelievers. The next word used in our New Testament to describe the afterlife is Hades. Hades was, in the Greek language, simply the resting place of the dead. The resting place of the dead. In Greek mythology, Hades was, a, was the place where all the dead went, and it was filled with many compartments, including a judgment hall. There were considered to be several rivers in Haiti, which Hades, which separated the various areas. Notice on the bottom, there was a place called Tartarus, which was the place of deep torment and punishment. Notice at the top, there was the top right there at about two o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock, there was a place called Elysium. This was their place of rest and of paradise. Now, I'm not suggesting that you appeal to Greek mythology to understand biblical theology. I'm not saying that at all. But the word Hades was a word which meant a resting place. It did not simply mean a place of torment. And when Jesus used the word Hades, when the Bible uses the word Hades, it's not explicitly speaking of a place of torment either. It's, 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 it's explicitly speaking of a place of death where the dead go. 
Hades does not always speak of punishment. Even the righteous went to Hades. It speaks of a temporary abiding place of the dead. Now, the next place, the next concept in the Bible is the bottomless pit, or also called the deep. There are several words used for this, one of which is tartarao, tartarus, used in Peter. I believe first Peter. This was a place where a subset of demonic hosts, angels who rebelled with Satan, are held in chains awaiting judgment. Now, remember, I'm not substantiating any of this with Scripture tonight. You want that? You've got to go back to that other message. We just don't have time to substantiate all this with Scripture. But uh, this place, the bottomless pit, the deep, the first word there in the Greek, abusos, the abyss, The Bible makes it clear that there are demons yet active in this world, given various dominions over areas of this world. But there's also a subset of these who did something God explicitly refused to allow them to do, and so they were thrown into this place called the bottomless pit, called the deep, called the abyss, a place of chains. In Jesus' day, we find that when he cast demons out, they would be sent potentially to a place of chains. As a matter of fact, the demoniac of Gadara, who was, was uh, um, uh, who had within him, trying to think of the exact word, uh, who had within him legion, right? For they were many. Begged Jesus not to cast him into the deep, but rather to allow him to go into the herd of swine. Possessed. That was the word I was looking for. And so Jesus allowed them to do that, and he didn't send them to the deep, to the abyss, the place where angels are held in chains. The final concept presented then is this concept called Abraham's bosom or paradise. This would be a place of rest, but not the final place of rest. Until Jesus' resurrection, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection, correct? And so Jesus had to be the first one to ascend into the Father. So when the righteous Old Testament saints died, they could not go directly into the presence of the Father. They had to wait until the finished work of Jesus was done. So there was a place where they would go, where they would rest and wait for Jesus' final work to be done, a place that we call, that, that's called in Scripture, Abraham's bosom or the thief on the cross, when he said, remember me when thou enter into their kingdom, what did Jesus say? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Paradise, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was a place of rest where the Old Testament saints awaited Jesus to finish the work of the atonement and the resurrection so that he could then bring them into the presence of God. For the Bible tells us today that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now here's what makes this complicated for we who use the King James Bible. One of the most glaring translational problems with the King James Bible, which is not perfect, by the way, our translation, is that the translators use the word hell to translate the, the, the Greek words Gehenna, Hades, Abyss, Grave, and Tartarus. All of those words in the Greek are all translated hell in the King James Bible, which means when you read the word hell, you could be reading about very different places. 
Is it talking about just the waiting place of the dead? Is it talking about the lake of fire? Is it talking about the abyss where, where the angels are held in chains? You have to get back to the Greek to know which one is being spoken of. To this end, it is impossible in the King James version of our English translation to know which place the writer is referring to when he uses the word hell. It is easy enough to open a concordance and find out which is what I always encourage you to do. Always. When you, when you run across the word hell, open a concordance, please. <laughs> but you need to know that hell is not, the, is not only a place of torment in our Bibles. Though it contains a place of torment, we could say. All of that being said, hell, Hades, was a word which could be used to speak directly of a place of torment. And in Luke 16, the word hell there is Hades, a place of torment. What this gives us then is a layout. Now, this is Clarence Larkin's layout. I don't agree with everything that Clarence Larkin um, uh, writes and whatnot, but he was a good theologian, a good man. And uh, just by saying Clarence Larkin here, I've probably lost some people, if not in this group, at least on the internet. Uh, but I do need to give uh, um, I do need to give give rights where rights are, and I don't fully even agree with this chart necessarily. He breaks up. Tartarus and the abyss or the bottomless pit into two different places. I don't necessarily do that. I don't agree with this chart fully, but this gives us an idea. And of course, he, he, you see it all here in a sphere. There are many that believe, and I would agree with them, that all of this is actually taking place in the center of the earth. Again, that sounds like conspiracy theory stuff. There are reasons why we would believe that as far as going into the grave, going into the earth, uh, and, and there's reasons why. That's neither here nor there. Again, I do explain that a little bit more in my other message. But what it gives us is something like this, which was designed by Clarence Larkin. But what we find in Luke 16 is a big part of why we believe this. When a person died in faith before Jesus' death and resurrection, they went to Abraham's bosom a waiting place called paradise. When a person dies outside of the faith, even to this day, they go to a waiting place of torment, which we might call hell proper. If you recall our little map of the Greek concept of the underworld, this would be uh, the, the great gulf between them, which Luke 16 says there's a great gulf fixed between Abraham's bosom and the place of torment, that great, great gulf would be that river in the middle of the river Styx. And as I say that, let me again stress that we cannot use Greek mythology or any other pagan system to define our understanding of the spiritual in any context. But even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? And Greek mythology, Roman mythology, a lot of pagan systems were drawn out of true concepts that were passed down from generation to generation, probably going all the way back to Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So to understand that there might be a little, a little truth smattered in all that error is not unfounded. So it is then. Now I give you all of that just to understand a little bit of, of the concept here of what's happening in the underworld. We move on perhaps too hastily, but we move on nonetheless. The beggar died and went to Abraham's bosom the waiting place for the just. The rich man went to hell proper, this place of torment, looked afar off, and the Bible says he saw Abraham and Lazarus sitting in Abraham's bosom. So in this, in this, uh, this parable, this illustration, this account, we see Lazarus 
sitting in Abraham's bosom, we see the rich man and the rich man who is burning in hell proper can actually see across this great gulf and see the place of paradise. Now we continue in the text. Verse 24, And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. The rich man is burning in the torments of hell. And he cries out from afar to Abraham, begging for a particular mercy. And this mercy for which he begs is that Lazarus, this man who sat at his gate begging for food, dogs licking his sores, the lame man who had nothing in that life would just take the tip of his finger, dip it in water, and cool his tongue. Just a moment of relief from the torment of that flame. A literal hell, literal flames, literal torment. Abraham replies this way to the rich man in verses 25 and 26. But Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. Remember you served mammon. Verse 13, right? And likewise, Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. I can't come to you. You can't come to me. Neither can they pass to us. That would come from thence. Abraham grants this rich man who was a child of Israel some perspective. He tells the man, remember that during your lifetime, short though it was when compared to eternity, you chose mammon over God. You had and chose and loved and served the things that life had over the things of the life to come. You had good things and Lazarus had evil things. But now Lazarus has found comfort and you are tormented. And this is just because you made your choice. In other words, point one is that the rich man chose his fate. So his fate is just. The rich man chose the things of the temporal. He chose mammon over the things of the eternal, over God. And now the rich man is getting the other side of his choice, which is torment. The rich man probably did not believe torment would actually come or else he probably would have chosen differently. But he chose rejecting faith and choosing mammon instead. He chose the things of the temporal. Lazarus, on the other hand, chose the eternal over the temporal. Now, for Lazarus, it was an easier choice, wasn't it? Because he had nothing temporal. So to choose the eternal is easy. Again, this is a principle of Scripture. If the reason why you chose Christ is because you had nothing else in this life to hang your hat on, praise God, you had nothing else in your life to hang your hat on to keep you from making the right choice. If you have found Christ, even though you've had plenty to hang your hat on in this life, praise God, you're one of the few that, whose eyes were open enough to choose Christ, though you had all of the temporal things of this life. Any man who is lame and poor will be more predisposed to invest in that which is promised on the other side of eternity. But either way, both had a choice. The rich man chose the temporal. Lazarus chose the eternal. And now the rich man and Lazarus are living in eternity by the choices they made. Abraham makes a second point. He says, besides the natural justice of the situation, there's a great gulf between us so that no one can pass from one side to the other. 
And this is important. The torment in hell is not just, as perhaps purgatory in the Catholic theology would imply, to burn off our sin. And then at some point your sin is all burned off and you can pass from burning into paradise. Abraham says no one passes from one side to the other. No one passes. He doesn't say you can't pass until your sin is paid for. He doesn't say you need, all of your sin needs to be burned up. All, 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 you need to pay a certain number of years of judgment before you can pass over. He says no one passes over. The great goal fixed, no one comes to or from. Once you're dead, your destiny is set. The rich man hears these words and he does not argue. He doesn't argue with it at all. He doesn't say that's not fair. He recognizes that this is just. So he changes his thought process. He says instead in verses 27 and 28, then said he, I pray thee therefore, well, if this is the case, father, that thou would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Okay, the rich man says, well, if I can't benefit from, from anything like that, if my, my, if, if my eternity is set now, at least send Lazarus back to my brethren. Let him rise from the dead let him go back to my brothers in my father's house and have him tell them that eternity is real, that what they do in this life matters for the next, that if they don't choose God instead of mammon in, 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 the, in the life, the temporal life, that they will end up in a place of torment. And I don't want them to be here in a place of eternal conscious torment. So at least send Lazarus back to my brothers. Send that mercy. Abraham responds in verse 29. Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Okay, the rich man says, if when you die, your ticket is punched, your destiny is set, send back to my brother. And Abraham says, look, they have the whole Bible, which would have been the Old Testament at the time, right? The law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets. They have all the testimony they need of the truth of this. And they have all the proof they need in the word of God, the inspired word of God, that there's a heaven, that there's a hell, that this stuff matters. They have all that they need. They have all the evidence they need that when a man who invests in the temporal does so at the expense of the eternal. They have all advantages possible because they have the testimony of the very prophets of God speaking the very words of God for a thousand years of history. A track record of a thousand years is pretty good evidence. So let your brothers hear them, Abraham says. Let your brothers hear the word of God. The rich man responds. He says, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. It's not enough. Sure, they have the book, but I had it too, and I didn't believe. I had the book, and it wasn't enough for me, but if a person were to rise from the dead, that would be physical, tangible evidence. If they were to see Lazarus, who has died, come back and tell them what, what he saw, what they could expect, then surely they would believe his testimony. Surely they would repent and begin to, to serve God instead of mammon, begin investing in eternity to which Abraham says this, our final verse. And he, Abraham, said unto him, the rich man, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. This is prophetic. 
on top of truth. Abraham says the rich man's supposition simply is not true. That if his brothers, like himself, are unwilling to hear the inspired word of God, to respond to the Holy Spirit of God and its conviction, they would not be persuaded no matter what. Folks, it's not about evidence. It's about faith. That all of the evidence that a man could possibly need to understand that God is real, that God is true, that there's a heaven, that there's a hell, that there's moral accountability, and that Jesus is Savior, it's all, it's, it's all been given to us. We don't need more. We don't need men rising up and doing miraculous things. We don't need men rising from the dead. We don't need those things. As a matter of fact, even in Jesus' day, Jesus didn't need to do those things. He was doing those things to show evidence of the kingdom. He was doing those things to fulfill the promises of the prophecies to show them that the kingdom of heaven had come because in the kingdom, there will be healing. In the kingdom, there will be health. In the kingdom, there will be food. In the kingdom, there will be these things. So Jesus came to bring the kingdom. But those who heard did not hear because of what Jesus did. Those who heard, heard because they've accepted the proofs of God. They've accepted the word of God. They've accepted Moses and the prophets. And if they accept Jesus, it's because they've accepted the Moses, Moses and the prophets. And if they accept Moses and the prophets, then they will accept Jesus because Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God. So they would not be persuaded, Abraham says, even if a man rose from the dead. And by the way, there is a Lazarus in scripture who rises from the dead, right? As well as a young man a widow's son, as well as the very son of God. Men were not persuaded. When Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, rose from the dead, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not say, wow, this is real. They said, we need to kill Lazarus. They started conspiring to kill the man that had just risen from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't say, wow, this must be real. They said, how can we hide this? How can we make sure no one hears about this? Indeed, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe the one rises from the dead. So ends Jesus's illustration. Similar to the parable of the angry son in Luke 15, Jesus ends without giving any commentary. He doesn't explain this one. He lets it hang on this point. And because he lets it hang so strongly on this last verse, we know just how important this last verse is for us to key in on. Just like in Luke 15 in the angry son, it ended with the angry son. It ended with the, the, the statement of the father. It ended with this idea of the father saying, you need to un understand that your son was lost and now he's found. And it ends there for us to understand that Jesus was saying, Pharisees, you're the angry son. Here, Jesus is giving a similar message. He's telling these Pharisees, one is going to rise from the dead and it's not going to matter. And you're still going to end up in hell because you don't believe Moses and the prophets. Not one jot or tittle will fail from the law. We preached on that last week in verses 14 through 18. And Jesus said, the law will not fail, but you don't believe the law. And so you have pressed into the kingdom. You have done violence to the kingdom. And those that do violence to the kingdom end up where the rich man ends up. Because you serve mammon, you don't serve God. And the point is this. These men did not reject truth because they lacked evidence. No man burning in hell is there because he lacked sufficient evidence to acknowledge the truths of God by faith.
They are there because they loved mammon, the things of this world, more than God. Each man makes his choice, and they chose pleasure in the temporal world above the promise or pleasure of the world to come. They chose the things of this world above the things of God. And since it is not for lack of evidence, indeed the evidence is plentiful already, more evidence is just that. It's just more. And if a man is unwilling to believe the vast evidence of the world to come given through creation, conscience, the word of God, no supernatural intervention is going to change his mind. This is the illustration. And now we apply this evening. Point number one, we need to lay it out there very clear. Hell, hell proper, the place of burning and torment that will be thrown into the lake of fire one day. Hell and the lake of fire. Hell is a real place of separation from God and conscious, fiery torment. There are many in this age of apostasy and heresy who insist that the Bible's teaching on hell and subsequently the lake of fire is only metaphorical or that they live out in the mind on this earth or that the earth is the hell of which God speaks. Anything other than the fact that God has prepared a place of eternal separation from him in conscious fiery torment. And one of the arguments they make to this point is that Jesus is giving a parable here, which means he, means he isn't trying to teach us about the nature of torment, only about the nature of belief, which is true. We mentioned already why it is possible to believe that Jesus was not giving a parable here because he names Lazarus, which is something he does not do in any of his other parables. But everything else about this account fits well with the argument that it is a parable. Really, however, whether it's a parable or not, this does not threaten the reality of this place called hell, of this place of burning, conscious torment and separation from God for several reasons. First, Luke 16 is only one of at least 20 places in the New Testament where a place of conscious, fiery torment is taught. And if we're going to reject all of them as metaphorical, well, then we might as well reject everything as metaphorical. Maybe belief unto, the, unto salvation is metaphorical. Maybe heaven is metaphorical. And if everything is metaphorical, then really we're all just sitting here wasting our time tonight. Second, even if Luke 16 is a parable, we've spoken about what parables are, Right? We've talked about it many times. What are parables? Jesus gave parables in order to connect hard spiritual truths to truths that would be understood, right? To concrete truths. So he took something concrete, something understandable, something well-known, and he used it to connect to some truth that was harder to understand, that was less concrete, that, that, that it would be harder to grasp so that you can grasp it through the known and through the, the reality, Right? In this parable, if it is a parable, the reality, the concrete part that Jesus is connecting is hell and Abraham's bosom. That's the reality part. That's not the hard spiritual truth part, right? The hard spiritual truth part is faith, that a man will not believe even if one rises from the dead. That's the hard spiritual truth, which means the concrete reality part of the parable is hell, Abraham's bosom, conscious torment, great goal fixed, that, that, that's the, the reality part. So, that, the, so e even if this were a parable, that part that people say, well, that's the hard part, that's the part we don't believe is real, that's the part that, in, a par in parabolic language, has to be real. 
if this is a parable. Acknowledging that this is a parable admits that these concepts are true. Let's consider some other verses. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed and having two hands uh, than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It's fire not quenched is mentioned twice there. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell Again, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if that eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Five times it says the fire is not quenched. The reality that men will be cast into fiery torment. This is the word Gehenna, by the way. This hell here is Gehenna. That word for the lake of fire, that word for the valley of Hinnom, that word for evil, the place of evil and burning. It's not the word Hades. It's, it's Gehenna. It also establishes that the place of fire does not cease. Let's look at a second verse, and then I would like us to stitch a few more things together. Back in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, the Bible said this, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed, uh, after he hath, killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Again, the word behind hell there is Gehenna, lake of fire, place of burning, Jesus warns people not to fear the man who only has the power to kill your body. Don't fear the, the robber, the thief, the government that only has the power to kill your body, but rather fear God. If it's between God and if it's between just physical death or God, fear God because God can not only, will not only be able to kill your body, but also cast you into the lake of fire. Fear him because men, the worst they can do to you is kill you. And then you can go to paradise. And then you can go to, to life everlasting. What an evil, misguided, manipulative statement this would be by our Lord if hell were not a real place, wouldn't it be? I mean, wouldn't this be an evil, misguided, manipulative, manipulative statement if Jesus said, don't fear man who can just throw you, just kill your body, but fear the one who can kill your soul. In other words, that word death, death is the concept of separation, Right? So to kill your spirit, to kill your spirit, soul and spirit are different, but to kill, to kill the eternal part of you would mean for you to have separation from God forever. Where? Hell. Gehenna. The place of burning. Horrible statement, manipulative statement by our Lord if it's not a real place. So what's the point? The point is that hell is a real place of separation from God and conscious fiery torment. And this sets the stakes, doesn't it? For your unbelieving relatives, for your unbelieving neighbors, this sets the stakes for our children, for our grandchildren. The stakes are the abode of God or a place of separation from God eternally in fiery conscious torment. This, these are the stakes 
of accepting or rejecting the gospel. These are the stakes of those people that you work with every day who are not on their way to heaven. This is what is at stake here. And if we can understand that those who die on the wrong side of this message, those who die outside of belief, spend an eternity in torment, it will do two things for us. First, it will compel you to make sure that you're on the right side of Christ, that you're on the right side. Are you on the right side of heaven and hell tonight? Do you know for sure that when you die, you will not go to the place of fiery, conscious torment and separation from God for eternity? If you don't know that, get that taken care of. Flee to Christ. These are the stakes. Second, like the rich man, what was the, the, his first thought was, parch my tongue. His second thought was, I don't want anyone else to come here. I don't want anyone else to ever come to this place. My five brothers, I don't want them here. If I can't be spared, at least spare them. The reality of hell will form in us an urgency to see others let out of inevitable torment and into life everlasting. Do you have that urgency? Do you care? Do you care enough to tell people the truth? To call, it's not your job to see people saved. Moses and the prophets, it was not their job to convince the rich man of the truth. God convinces men of truth. Men do what they will with it. It was Moses and the prophet's job to tell, to tell, so that people don't walk away from us not having at least heard that there's a hell, that there's a heaven, that there's a God who loves them, that who is willing to save them from this place of fiery conscious torment in an eternal place of separation from God and bring them to a place of a relationship with Christ and God. God and Christ. Second point. First, hell is a real place of separation from God and conscious fiery torment. Number two, no one passes from hell to heaven. It doesn't happen. In these two verses, we have seen that fiery torment is real, that it is eternal, that we are called to fear it, but there's nothing about it, the eternal fires of hell that implies that a man, having gone to the fiery torments of hell, eventually the lake of fire, will stay there forever, right? After all, even in both Orthodox Judaism and in Catholicism, which believe in a literal hell, at least on paper, they acknowledge that men don't stay there forever. Well, we first consider the passage at hand. We've already talked about this briefly. Abraham makes it clear that the certain rich man has no way to pass from hell to Abraham's bosom. There's no way to do it. The great gulf is fixed. So if a man in the days of Abraham died outside of the faith, he had gone to hell. If, if a man in the days of Abraham had died, in the had died outside of the faith and gone to hell, he would have been in that place of burning by that point of the rich man and Lazarus for well over a thousand years. And if there was no way to pass from hell to Abraham's bosom, that man, after a thousand years, having died in the days of Abraham and having been in there when the rich man and Lazarus entered at Jesus' time, 
having been there for over a thousand years, would still have had to have been there or else Abraham was lying when he said, there's no way for you to come to me, right? If there was no way for a man to get from one side to the other, then a man in Abraham's day would have been burning for a thousand years. Then a man in Adam's day, a man perhaps say Cain, would have been burning for 3,000 years. Now, if you could burn off your sins, it would be very unjust for them to have been burning for that long without a chance to get over, unless, of course, we don't know the system, but the Bible doesn't teach any of that, right? The point is, what we know from Scripture definitively is Abraham says, there's no way for you to pass from that side to this side. Simply put. And by the way, those men are still in torments at the, on this day, if the Bible is true. On this day, they are still in hell, awaiting final judgment, tormented in their flames, separated from God. Now, there's no mention of hell being emptied out until the final page of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible mentions, perhaps, uh, depending on how we interpret it, that Abraham's bosom, that Jesus died, he went down, he preached to someone, talks about that more, we could talk about that, we're not going to talk about that tonight. Then he led captivity captive. He emptied Abraham's bosom and they were able to go into the presence of the Lord after he ascended unto the Lord as the first fruits. But hell is still populated to this day. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, the Bible says this is where hell is emptied. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. So hell delivers up their dead to be judged according to their works. And death and hell were then, everybody in death and hell, everybody that were, was a part of death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And this is what the Bible calls the second death. Hell gives up the dead. They're found guilty before God. Then they're cast into the lake of fire. This horrible fate called the second death described this way in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, all who love not the truth, shall have their part in the lake of fire. Here it is again, which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. Why is it another death? If you're going to burn there forever, you're not dying. What are you? You're separated from God. That's death, right? Separation. The second death. The first death is physical. The separation of your body, your material from your immaterial. The second death is the separation of yourself from God forever in a place of fiery torment called the lake of fire. So how do we know that this time in hell and subsequently the lake of fire is indeed eternal? We begin in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, Paul writes, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead, here it is, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. Notice in this passage, Paul says that the principle of eternal judgment, he lots this in, that judgment is forever as a foundational doctrine in Christ. He says the foundational doctrines of Christ is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. That's salvation. Then baptism. It's a foundational doctrine of the church. 
Then the laying on of hands. That's the ordination of ministers. That's a foundational doctrine of the church. The resurrection of the dead, a foundational doctrine of the church, and finally, eternal judgment. It's a foundational doctrine. This is the, this is the basic stuff. This is the stuff upon which everything else is built. Those, that's just the foundation, folks. This is the stuff that everybody, this is orthodoxy. Can we put it that way? Eternal judgment is orthodoxy. It is baseline. It is expected that you believe this stuff. This is, these are the basics. This is the simple foundational elements of the faith. This is the stuff that should not occupy your time for long. When you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, salvation by grace through faith, baptism, laying on of hands, ordination, ministers, authority, church authority, the fact that you need to be in a church, the fact that there's a church authority, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, that's the stuff that should come very quickly and easily, and then you can move on to growing in Christ. You can move on to spiritual maturity. That's the basic stuff. And one of the basics is this, that judgment is eternal. What about Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29? Verily I say unto you, Jesus says, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall be blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now we talked about this a little while back in the book of Luke, that the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the, the spirit of Jesus Christ in John 16 is that which is ordained by God to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin, because they believe not on him on righteousness, because Jesus has ascended unto the father and of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. This is the Holy Spirit's role in the hearts of unbelievers. And if you reject the Holy Spirit, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit and you end up in hell because you've not believed on the name of the only begotten son of God. And again, if you reject the Holy Spirit, you will never have forgiveness, Jesus says, but are in danger of eternal damnation. Those words are very final, aren't they? Very final. Very clear. Furthermore, the doctrine presumes something very important. That the reason people burn in hell, the, the, this, this doctrine of purgatory or people getting out of hell after some time of punishment presumes something very important and presumes something doctrinally errant. It presumes that people are burning in hell because of their sin, their sins, their works. Not, not, not the fact that they are sinners, but the fact that they commit sins, their works. They will be judged for their works, just like believers will be judged for their works, but it is not the book of works that is opened by which they cast into the lake of fire, is it? The Bible says in Revelation, we'll talk about it, uh, we, we, we'll talk about it, uh, we won't talk about it, uh, but the Bible says in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that, they were, that the books were opened and another book was opened, which was the Lamb's book of life. And they who were not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. It's your name in the Lamb's book of life that determines. So to this end, once a person is uh, in this false doctrine, you are in hell, you are burning in hell because of your works. And if you're burning in hell because of your works, then once you have paid off your debt, because everybody has different works, right? Different level of debt. Once your impurities are burned off, you can graduate into heaven. But that's not how judgment works. On the day of judgment, as we mentioned, the books will be opened and every man will be judged by his works. 
but it is not the books of works which decide whether you'll go to heaven or whether you'll go to the lake of fire. It is the Lamb's book of life. If you're in the book of life, you enter into life everlasting. If you're not in the book of life, you do not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon you. And what determines whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life? One thing and one thing only. Whether or not you have believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. May I prove it? John 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's the qualification. Believeth on him. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Take note of this next verse. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Why is he condemned? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's why. We skip to verse 35. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abideth on him. Do you see why, what it is that will cause a person not to see life? It is not their sins. It is not the fact that they have committed sins. And this is so important. It is the fact that they have committed the sin of not believing on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Is it our sins, our sin nature, our sins, our sins are the symptoms of a deeper problem, right? And that deeper problem is a sin nature. That's the virus, that's what separates us from God. If that's not taken care of, that's why we go to hell. So you can have a moral person who has not accepted Jesus Christ as their savior and an immoral person, and yes, they'll be judged by their works. And yes, there may be a tear of, of torment chain, difference. We could talk about that. But one way or another, they're both on their way to the lake of fire. It's not because of their sins that they've committed, it's because of the sin of not believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's what John three sixteen through 18 says. I hope I'm making that clear. I've had people leave the church because they, 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 they think I believe that people don't go to hell because they're sinners. No, that's why they go to hell. But it's not their sins, the works that they have committed for which they're burning. If we believe that, then there's no reason to believe that there's not a tiered system and people can get out. If they were burning for their actual works, that's a whole different ballgame than the fact that they're burning because they've not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Because when the Lamb's book of life is opened, their name is not written in it. That's what the Bible teaches. That's somewhat of a hard truth, but it changes the way you see grace. If we can glean this. I hope I expressed it properly. I had somebody one time where I explained that and they said, well, maybe you should explain it this way. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. And I've forgotten how they told me to explain it. So I did my best. If you have questions about that, please come see me. I'm not saying that people do not go to hell for their sin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the sin for which, that the condition upon which people go to heaven is belief on the name of the only begotten son of God. And if they don't believe on the name of the only begotten son of God, they go to hell, right? That's not controversial. It's just a slight perspective change where we understand that when they go to hell, they are there because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And their sins is just an evident token of their perdition. All men are guilty before God. Our works confirm us in our sinful state. Our sin has positioned us as qualified for judgment, but those who burn in the lake of fire 
one day will have no chance to get out because they aren't burning to pay off the debt of their sins. Jesus paid off the debt of their sins on the cross. They are burning because they've not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God because they rejected the payment. And so now they are in hell because they're sinners, because they've rejected the payment. It's a hard truth. I hope I explained it properly. But I believe John 3.36 John 3, makes it very clear. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. If you have questions about that, please come see me. Email me if you're on the internet. Don't just stop listening. Point number three. It is not lack of evidence that keeps people away from God. It is lack of willingness to submit and believe. Psalm 19.1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. I spoke several months ago about the three primary and one tertiary form forms of the revelation of God. Primarily, God reveals himself through creation, through our conscience, the reality of morality in our lives, and through God's word. Secondarily, God always reserves the right to reach people through miraculous intervention, right? Special revelation used as a means of directing men toward the word of God, toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, not an end in and of itself. Special revelation doesn't, isn't the end all of truth. Special revelation points men to the truth. On this day, Jesus gave an illustration which says that a man, even when shown something miraculous, even when given special revelation, like a man raising from the dead, it would not convince a man any more than the word of God does. Jesus tells these Pharisees that had Lazarus risen from the dead and told the rich man's five brethren, they would have rejected his testimony as well because the problem in the heart of man is not that we don't know that there is a God. The problem in the heart of man is that we don't want God having authority over us. The problem in the heart of man is that God is unwill or that man is unwilling to acknowledge God's authority and God gives every man a will volition with which to exercise either for or against revelation. Romans one is the clearest teaching of this in the Bible. The Bible says in Romans one verses 18 through 20 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of righteous of, uh, unrighteousness of men who hold, that word means to hold down or to squelch or to hide or to press away the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it unto them. Romans chapter one tells us not only is God known to them, but the reality that they are going to face judgment, the reality that the wrath of God rests upon man is evident to every man. How? Do, how, how? That's none of my business. This is what the Bible tells me. For the invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world, from the very beginning, and the reality of creation itself are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that every man, they, are without excuse. Romans 1 tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That it isn't that men don't know the truth, but they hold the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress it in their hearts. The eternal power and Godhead of God, that means his authority, his power and his authority over them are clearly seen in the things that are made so that no man has any excuse. 
Men that reject God don't do it because they don't have evidence of him, folks. They do so because they have suppressed in their hearts the clear evidence of him. And to any man who will accept what is clearly manifest by faith, God will continue to faithfully reveal to him the truth until they hear the gospel and are passed from death unto life. The standard is and will always be since the death of Jesus Christ that no man cometh unto the Father but by me, the gospel of Jesus Christ. A man must believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We already covered that, John 3.16. If a man receives the revelation of God, that the wrath of God is upon him, that there is a God who has eternal power and Godhead, then God will take it upon himself to reveal to that man the truth to send a missionary, to have a tract found in whatever it might be to show him the truth so that he can receive it and be saved. That's God's business. That's God's job. That's the spirit of God. That's, we're just messengers. And if the capacity for self-deception in the heart of man is this strong, that he will suppress the truth and unrighteousness, then no matter what God does, man is able to find a way to ignore it. To this end to this point in Jesus's ministry, Jesus has healed the lame, the sick, the demonically possessed, the blind. He's even raised a, a one young man from the dead and presumed, depending on where we place this in the, in the account, there's another one yet to come before he raises himself back to life. But has this convinced the unbeliever? It hasn't. Because even before Jesus came and did wondrous miracles, these evil men had more than enough information to know the power and Godhead of Jehovah and to submit to it, but they didn't. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Why? Verse 13 of Luke 16, they loved mammon more than God. Right? And so if they didn't hear Moses and the prophets, if they didn't acknowledge the very world around them, they will not believe even if one rises from the dead. No amount of miraculous intervention can convince the heart of a man who has flatly determined to reject Christ to accept him. Not because God is unwilling, but because they are unwilling. Now, what are we not saying here? We are not saying that because a man says today he doesn't believe that he can never come to the saving knowledge of the truth, right? He can repent. He can change his heart. He can make that choice later until the day that he dies or the Lord returns. Then the door is shut. Then it's over. Paul was a persecutor of the church until his encounter with Christ. Many a man and a woman have lived in rebellion to God only to one day come to the end of themselves and to flee to Christ. The point is not that men are confirmed in their damnation because they say no when they hear the gospel. And most certainly we aren't saying that men are eternally predestined toward a heaven or hell. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that, that implies that. So no matter what you and I do or anyone else does, certain men are spiritually incapable of believing. And so God has made them for hell. This is not just confusion. This is anti-biblical. This is anti-biblical. This is, this is a, this is damage to the character of God himself. The point is not about whether they can or can't believe. The point is that in the hearts of many men, the problem is not that they have not been given enough evidence to know the nature of God, the existence of God, the authority of God. The problem is that they have hardened their heart to the evidence because they love the things of this world more than the things of God. And they are looking for an excuse to keep the things of this world and to love the things of this world, but to somehow excuse in their hearts the fact that they're not doing anything wrong. And so they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They serve mammon, and you cannot serve God and mammon. 
And unless at some point in their mortal lives they come to repent of their love for mammon and choose rather to love God and thus accept his offer of eternal life through the gospel, what did Jesus say in chapter 13? But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Man cannot entertain a love for this world and a love for God simultaneously. It's just the way God has designed it. The question is then, where do you fall into this, the midst of this whole body of truth. And I've given you a lot tonight. I apologize if it's like drinking from a fire hose tonight. Are you among those who have sought to justify yourself, trusting in yourself to secure your relationship with God, seeking to earn favor with him through something other than the finished work of Christ on the cross? Are you one who has heard the promises of the gospel, but no that the call of the gospel is a call to acknowledge Christ as God, as authority, as the one that has eternal dominion and Godhead? Have you come to the crossroads and simply love the world so much that you are not willing to yield this world for the sake of the world to come? And if this is you, you're not in the faith, you're trusting your dead works. You can never get to heaven on your dead works. Or you simply love the promises of this world more than the promises of Christ. And he, God's not going to compete with, 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 with the world. If this is you, would you accept the simplicity of the gospel? That you're a sinner, that you cannot get yourself to heaven. That you cannot love God and mammon. That you cannot hold fast to your sin and love your sin with all of your heart and serve your sin and serve God at the same time. But that you don't have to because God sent his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life but to die a sinner's death and to take your sin so that you could be, the chains of sin could be broken over your life so that you could serve God. And then he rose from the dead to secure for you eternal life as well. And that if you will accept this simple gospel with all of your heart, put all of your eggs in his basket, no plan B, that Christ will receive you as his own, that he will make you a new creation in Christ. There's another group here, however. You've accepted the gospel. You've recognized your works cannot save you. You've acknowledged that the promises of the world to come are more important than the promises of this life and so have believed into salvation. But does an element of mammon still have a hold on you? As you think of the priorities of your life and really the fruit of your life can tell you this. As you think of your priorities, where you put your time, where you put your money, as you look at where your time goes, as you look at where your money goes, as you look at where your priorities go, is it on something other than Christ? Has a piece of mammon, a bit of mammon, found its way back into your heart and into your love? You aren't trying to justify yourself, but maybe you are continuing in sin that grace may abound. Today's message is about the man in torment, aching to have another chance to believe. But maybe you've accepted the gospel of Christ already. You aren't living, however, like the redeemed. In your heart is resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, lust, covetousness. And you're not giving it up because you love it, because you want it. 
And it's, it, it, it didn't keep you from understanding the simplicity of the gospel, but it's keeping you from the fullness of life in Christ. At some point, as, first, as Second Peter tells us, you've forgotten that you were once purged from your old sins. And so now mammon has found a hold in your life. This world has found a hold and it's, it's directing you a little bit. It's taking you in its direction rather than in God's direction. And parents, husband, wife, it will impact your marriage. Parents, it will impact your family. Believer, it will impact this church. And it's time to take the next step. This is the message I preached a couple of weeks ago. This is Jesus' message in verses 1 through 13 of Luke 16, right? It began with him speaking to his disciples and the parable of the unjust servant about not serving God and mammon. And then the Pharisees derided him, and Jesus says, let me tell you how hypocritical you are, Pharisees. So all of this has been to unbelievers. This is the message to the unbelievers tonight. I get it. But believers, maybe you didn't get it two weeks ago when I preached in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, about the unjust servant and not serving God and mammon. But remember, Jesus started with his disciples. You can, though you are in Christ, though you are saved yet so as by fire, it is still a possibility that you, believer, have allowed mammon to take a hold of you. Or perhaps, may I put it this way, you've again taken a hold of mammon. And you love it and it's dictating your priorities and it's dictating your thoughts and it's dictating your relationships and it's dictating the things in your life. And if you're there, it's time to get serious again. There are so many men and women who will writhe in eternal torment on the day of judgment who wish they could have believed. And here you have Christ. You live in the grace of God You have been made a new creation in Christ. Are you spurning it? Are you wasting it? Are you continuing in sin that grace may abound? Have you forgotten that you were once purged from your old sins? Are you taking it for granted? It isn't that any of us don't know. The question isn't our knowledge. It it, it is our faith. And that's what it comes down to. What it comes down to in our lives is a question of faith. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, you, you have gotten the level of faith Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. But are you abounding in that faith? Or have you hit a, a place where you just say, nope, my, 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 what I want in my heart, I'm just not willing to yield it to the Lord. How's your faith doing this evening? Are you in the faith? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Are you living out the realities of your faith? Let's close in prayer.